Amen. Well, it is great to be with you today. It's great to have you here. And it's great to be in a new location at a new time, a little bit earlier in the day. And I'm just really excited about what the Lord's been doing and how He's been providing. Uh, I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 today, continuing our study of the book of Ephesians. So I just want to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of Him who fills all and all. Now, what a a glorious passage. It's Paul praying for this church at Ephesus. And we're going to see this morning uh, this prayer here that Paul has for the church. But I love how he starts for this reason, because I've heard of your faith. He had already given us 14 verses of a sentence describing the the majesty and beauty and glory of the Father and Son and Spirit's work in salvation, our triune God's sovereign work of salvation. And Paul, as he just has gone from doctrine and doxology in these first 14 verses of of explaining to us who God is and what He's done for us and why we ought to respond to the praise of His glory, he then says, well, for this reason, i got to pray for you i got to pray for you. And, and I love the content of, of Paul's prayer. <coughs> you can hear in the content of Paul's prayer that he loves the church. He loves this church in Ephesus. He loves the body of Christ. He constantly ties and applies it to the body of Christ here, not only in chapter 1, but the reconciliation in chapter 2, the, the greater understanding of the love of God in chapter 3 in the second prayer. That you would know how high and wide and deep and long the love of Christ is. So that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he spends the second half of the book working it out in the local church. What what should be the implications? And so Paul's really just laying the foundation for the argument of his whole book. He's laying that foundation uh, for us here in chapter 1. And and I have to say, what what a wonderful reminder that we should love the church the church is easy to pick on especially in the day and age of social media we can find everything wrong with the greater church but the lord jesus christ loves his church he calls the church his bride we have here in this passage the church is his body the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways, that we ought to love the church. I love our fellowship, not only here at Trinity Church, but our fellowship 
as a local church in the Bay Area with many other churches. I, I love the fellowship we have, how we've had other pastors come and share the word in this pulpit to encourage us. I love that we're connected to the seminary in Vallejo and that we have all of these relationships of pastors that are partnering in the gospel. I was very privileged to grow up in these circles and to be mentored and trained by these pastors and now just wanting to pass the baton and see this continue to go and, and to, to be spread. I mean, thinking about even what we're desiring to do with Jason, he's now greenlit as a church planter with the Send Network. And what the Lord has in the next couple years for him is for us to, by God's grace, send him. And to be another multiplying church and, and be about the Great Commission. And so... All of that to say, we ought to love the church. And Paul is not even saying, telling us by command, you need to love the church. It's just oozing out of him that he loves the church. For this reason, because of I, heard, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease ever to give thanks for you. And I remember you in my prayers. They are precious to him. And we see also in this prayer that, well, the Father wants us to see Christ in His glory. We're going to really, really open that up today and see the Christ-centeredness of God the Father uh, and how He says, look at Jesus. Look at the sufficiency of Jesus. Look at everything that Jesus has for us. But it also becomes a model for our prayer, doesn't it? You don't see in this prayer a lot of what we tend to think ought to be in prayer. Yes, Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, um, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. So the prayer for needs is legitimate. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. But when Paul prays, and he's praying for this church, he prays very specific things about who they are in Jesus, the reality of their identity in Jesus, so that it would cause them to walk in a way that's worthy of the manner in which they were called in fact that's the argument of the whole book of ephesians is the glory of christ in the church the community of faith and paul's prayer breaks into three parts here first he begins with thanksgiving to god then he does make requests for the church and i want to look at those because they're fabulous and then he responds at the end by praising god and throughout the prayer we see that the father wants to put a spotlight on his son the lord jesus so first, thanksgiving for sovereign grace in the lives of the believers. This is verses 15 and 16. I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, and I do not cease to give thanks for you. The cause of Paul's thanksgiving is the faith and love of the Ephesians. Now, why does he mention faith and love? Well, I think in this context, faith separates them from the surrounding pagan culture. They did not have faith in God. They had faith in the God, the Greek gods, Zeus, Apollo, Hercules, you know them all. They, they, that's what they had their faith in, although we could argue they didn't really have strong faith in those gods. They just did whatever it took to appease those gods. Paul says, you have faith in the Lord Jesus. Your faith separates you from the surrounding pagan culture, but you not only have that, you have love. And what does he say? Love toward all the saints. 
So their love unites them to each other just as their faith separates them from the pagan world. It doesn't take any special skill to be a critic, does it? You just read the comments section of any news article or blog post on the internet. You just look at social media. It demonstrates the truth. For that matter, all you got to do is sit on a porch on a Sunday afternoon uh, and criticism probably arises in the conversation. That's just in us, it seems like, and I wish it wasn't. I don't want to be a grumpy old man when I get old, yelling, get off my lawn. I don't want to be that. And, and here we see that the faith and love of this community, as it separated them from the surrounding world, it united them to one another. And when we see others, other Christians as who they are in Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and encouraging them to be more of what they already are in Christ, this is the heart of the gospel. This is this is the remedy for criticism, by the way, is to not look at people with worldly eyes, as Paul tells the Corinthians, but to look at them through the lens of the gospel. In fact, what does the gospel say? I know I've said this before. The gospel says, cheer up, you're worse than you think. You're worse than you think. You don't even know the depravity of your heart. But God in Christ loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And he's demonstrated it by giving his son And he gave his son when you were at your worst, when I was at my worst, so that he could give you his best, not only his son, but himself. What an amazing thought that we are accepted and adopted and brought into the family of God as a gift by faith, not by works. And this is what Paul's going to get into in chapter four. He's going to say that that this implication is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, he says, one Spirit. You were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul's laying the foundation in chapter 1 to say, I am so grateful for your faith and your love, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. I'm so grateful for it because this is what we need to do is live this faith and love out to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which reflects the reality of not only the gospel, but our triune God. There's one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and above all and in all. So this is a big deal. And Paul says to this Ephesian church, you already have it. He's not rebuking them for lacking it. He is thanking God that he hears about that they have it. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? Since you already have this, I'm going to pray for you more. Now let's get to the content of the prayer. Verses 17 to 19. Paul intercedes that God's sovereign purposes in his people may be accomplished. He says, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prays for them and he wants them to know it. He tells them, I'm praying for you. And here's what I'm praying. First, that you would have a spirit of wisdom in order to know the Father better in Jesus. He's, this is a Trinitarian message 
And, and it seems complicated, right? Now we got to talk about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But the minute we talk about the gospel, we talk about the Trinity. The Father so loved the world, He gave His Son. Now we're talking Trinitarianly. And so don't be intimidated by that. Don't be overwhelmed by that. And, and what Paul wants this church to know is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has already blessed us by giving His Son, and the one we ought to praise for those blessings, He's the Father of glory, according to verse 17. He's the source of all true glory and power, and He reveals this glory in His Son. And He wants to give you His Spirit, who's the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So, here we see these dynamics of the Father giving the Spirit to us, which He gave us at salvation, but He pours out the Spirit so that we would have more wisdom, more knowledge, enlightening the eyes to see the glory of God the Father in the person of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is what Jesus told His disciples in John 17. This is eternal life, to know God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus whom He sent. This is at the heart of eternal life. So when Paul is praying for them that they would know this more, this is at the heart of their salvation. And by the way, this is the remedy for so much of what ails us. I remember Pastor John Piper in one of his books talking about no one goes to the Grand Canyon to behold self. You don't make a trip to the Grand Canyon well, a lot of people do now to take selfies. I guess maybe, maybe the illustration is worn. What do you go to the Grand Canyon to do? Behold splendor. To see this magnificent display of splendor. Why? Piper argues because there's more healing in beholding splendor than in beholding self. There's no healing in beholding self, is there? The more we behold ourselves, the more we see all the problems and the more we realize we need healing. But when we see the majesty and the glory and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, well then, we are healed. There's healing in it. And so Paul prays that this is the, the meat of it. So yes, this is the foundation, our triune God revealing who He is through the ministry of the Spirit. But then verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened what a beautiful picture the eyes of your heart enlightened uh, we need a light switch turned on as it were in our hearts to see what's there now three reasons we don't often feel that God is at work toward us one we're not aware of the blinding deadening power of sin that God is conquering in our lives sometimes we have sin that's in our lives and that is blinding us to the fact that God is at work in our lives. Second, we're often not aware of the magnitude of demonic power that's coming against us at all times. That is being held back. Because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Third, we don't consider fully what happened to Jesus uh, after the resurrection, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's ruling and reigning with the greatest authority, and that all his enemies are put under his feet. These things are already ours. And so when Paul prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, this isn't saying God would put something more in your heart. It's that God would show you what already He put there. You ever walk into a dark room? You don't know what's in there. 
just have kids, it's Legos every time. I don't know why. On the floor, Legos. And guaranteed, doesn't matter where you walk, they're guaranteed to be in the pathway. Right? All of a sudden, though, a light goes on and you see, oh, there's this here in the room and that in the room and that. What God is saying is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know what you already have in Jesus. What's already yours. Reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim, as he's facing the giant of despair and locked up in Doubting Castle, Pilgrim saw no way out behind this jail cell until he prayed and remembered, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I could walk at liberty. I already have the key in my bosom called promise that will, I'm persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Now this is a allegory and our doubts in the Christian life are conquered by the promises of God but what what Pilgrim was saying is I already have it I already have the key I don't have to find the key I have it have you ever been entangled in a quest for something more more of Jesus more of the Holy Spirit more power more blessings more spirituality that if you could just get that something more then you would be happy that's a lie from the devil what you have in Christ you already have He's given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So what is it here, though, in Ephesians 1? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know first the hope of His calling. What is the goal of our salvation? This isn't the hope of our calling, but the hope of His calling. You see the difference there? This is God's plan to sum up all things in Jesus back in verse 11. The world is the Lord's and we are His forever. And our God is just and gracious and sovereign and saving. And the significance of hope, you you hear it here because it's the hope of His calling. Are we going to be before Him blameless and holy, as it says at the beginning of chapter 1? Yes. Why? Because He's predestined a plan to do it. He's going to accomplish it. It's not resting upon us and our failures. Not only that, we understand the significance of hope when we hear the voices of our world that don't have it. Just look at our arts, whether it's movies or music or literature or politics. There is no hope. Oh, there's promises of hope, but all of us are cynical. And it's fascinating that the romantic movement in literature and in art has given way to postmodernism, just from a a general sweeping movement. And and one of the hallmarks of postmodernism is that there's no hope. Everybody's cynical. So it's no surprise that the entertainment industry gives us dystopian entertainment, entertainment that is not happily ever after, but rather we're being real about this and it's all dark and dreary. And Our hope is not simply a pipe dream. It's an earnest expectation of the promises of God that are always yes and amen in Christ. It's a hope that's really true. Our hope is in a new heaven and a new earth. The hope of the glory of God, Paul tells the Romans in Romans 5. It's the hope of appearing with Christ in glory at the end, he tells the Colossians in Colossians 3.4. This is the hope of His calling, which He had said at the beginning. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So Paul prays for this Ephesian church. Remember, this is the hope to which God called you is that you would be his forever. You would be in his family. You would have a home. You would have a place. You would be accepted and welcome in the beloved one. That's really good news. I mean, that deserves an amen, I think. <laughs> I don't go fishing for him very often, but we got to get used to the acoustics of this room, I think, here. Uh, the, uh... Second, he says, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know that we are God's inheritance. In other words, to know who we are as God sees us. Verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? God considers us his inheritance. As hard as that may be to believe, his promised blessing to himself is a people that he chose in chapter 1, verse 4. And the path of God's inheritance of us is incredible. The Father chooses a people, verse 4. He gives them to the Son. In fact, if we were to go over to chapter, uh, John chapter 6, Jesus tells us in verse 37 that the Father has given Him a people. In John 10, it's this same people that He calls His sheep who hear His voice and follow Him. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, the Son brings those people back to the Father and says, here am I and the children you've given me. And he, the Son sings over us in the presence of God. And the value of us is established by the Father's value of Christ. Uh, turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Think about this. What is your value according to the Father. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In Him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, you were raised, verse 12, with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is your value? You need to see yourselves as God sees you. This is what Paul is praying. And think about this reality. According to the Father, you're worth a son. He gave his son. That's incredible. The world may tell you you're worth nothing, that you're worthless, that, that you, you have no value. Maybe they're pragmatic. The only value you have is what you can produce. Or maybe it's, uh, you know, narcissistic. The only value you have is how much joy you can bring me. The Father says, I fixed your worth at the cross. And I determined that you were worth a son. I gave my son for you. Isn't that incredible? That is good news. And Paul, back in Ephesians chapter 1, he, he says in verse 18 that you would know the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know what are the riches of 
the Father's glorious inheritance in the saints. This, is, this verse, he's not talking about your inheritance of receiving heaven. He's talking about the Father receiving you to himself. That's almost too good a news to hear. That's why Paul's saying, I know you don't believe it. That's why you need the eyes of your heart enlightened to see it. His value is established by the value of Christ. The riches of our worth is not because we're so special or because of anything in us inherently. We know that. It's tied to who we are in Jesus. We've been placed in Him. I love the Getty song that we sing, My worth is not in what I own. Verse 3, I think it is, says, Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed at the cross, my ransom paid for my unworthiness at the cross. Isn't that incredible? What a beautiful picture. You are worth the Son coming to die in your place at the cross so that you could have life and be brought into the family of God. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how much sin you've committed, you are welcome by faith to receive this gift of Jesus. And the Father wants you to know this. That is a good prayer. That is a really good prayer. I wish people would pray that prayer for me because my eyes get veiled by this fallen world and, and my own sorrows and sins and they just veil my eyes to what's really true. But he doesn't stop there. That's not even the height of his prayer. He, be, he goes into verse 19 and he says, what's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul emphasizes the importance of this power by placing it last in the list of prayer requests. And then he uses this expression in the Greek, the immeasurable greatness, meaning it's so great you could never reach its limits. You could never measure it. And he says it's the power that the Father is working toward us who believe. And then he piles up words for God's strength and work. Four nouns and one verb in this sentence. He says, according to the working, there's the verb, energeo, of his great might that he worked when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The surpassing greatness of his power, his dunamis toward us who believe. This is the Father who is working on our behalf behind the scenes. We don't even see it. And then Paul says, well, let me tell you what kind of power it is, if you're wondering. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection power is at work on your behalf right now, right this minute, today, in your life. And Paul knows that you and I don't always see it, and so he's praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see what's already going on. This would revolutionize our lives, wouldn't it? This would change how we wake up tomorrow morning and go to work and face the trials of our day and the sin that remains and all of these things if we realize I am in Jesus. I have a hope that the Father's called me to that He's going to be faithful to complete in Jesus. So I have a home in heaven and it's not going to be taken away from me. Not only that, the Father sees me, Ryan, as His inheritance. 
And so I'm not going to be cast out or abandoned or, or, or put in a corner and said, I don't want to see you. No, the Father says, I welcome you. You're my inheritance. You're worth a son to me. And then he says, you're so important to me, I'm working resurrection power on your behalf in your life right now so that all of these things would happen. The power of God. Like a spectrum of light not visible to the human eye. We can't see it, but it's there. This is the Father working on our behalf. That's the heart of his prayer. That's a really good prayer. That should encourage your hearts and bring some smiles and make you want to dance a little bit, even if you're Baptist. Even if you, you may not want to claim that Baptist, but there might be a desire to dance over this. Well, Paul continues on, verse 19 and 20, adoration. He begins to worship God for the work of raising and exalting Christ. Paul can't help it as he talks about, oh yeah, the resurrection power that's at work in your life is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Let me just go on a rabbit trail and talk about what this means that Jesus was raised from the dead. When he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So Paul worships the Father for raising and exalting Christ. Adoration. The resurrection of Christ. Verses 19 and 20. Now, I guess I want to, be, I want to make a, a, a little caveat. Be a little bit with any work of God. It's not like one thing is more work for him than another. He's omnipotent. So when we talk about the resurrection of Christ being the most powerful act of God... It's not that there's degrees of difficulty, like in the Olympics, in the gymnastics event. Rather, Paul wants to show you the most glorious and most revealing act of God the Father. What is it that displays the glory and character of the Father the most? Raising Jesus from the dead. That His promises are yes and amen. What's at work in your life? A glorious and magnificent power that's at work in your life to bring you into the family of God and bring you safely home to heaven forever so that you'll never be cast out you'll never be alone you'll never be orphaned you'll never be exiled this is what resurrection power is it's able to overcome sin and death this is why Paul's going to say in the next chapter chapter 2 verse 5 even when we were dead in our trespasses the Father made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The Father not only raised Jesus, he, he exalted Jesus to His right hand. That's what we heard in verse 20. Above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This sovereign power of the Father places Jesus above all of the ruling forces of this world. And we see in chapter 2, verse 6, that when we were raised with Jesus we were also exalted with Jesus verse 6 he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus I know I've explained this to you before I got this from my mentor Frank Griffith but verse 7 the coming ages in the Greek that phrase was used of um waves upon a seashore as waves come 
one upon another on a seashore. And so think about eternity as ages. As one age of eternity comes upon another upon another, you know what the Father's going to be doing? He's going to be, according to this verse, showing us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This means that we're going to constantly grow in our knowledge of the Father's grace and love to us in the Son. So this prayer, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know what you already have, this prayer is going to be part of the content of all eternity. This is what we're going to be doing forever, is growing in our knowledge of the gospel. And what's it going to cause us to do? Praise the Lord. To Him belongs all the glory and all the praise. He did it all. Now, when he says rule and authority and power, these are in chapter 6, verse 12. If you look at that, these are the enemies that we face. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so these spiritual forces, these ranks of fallen angels that are behind the world system these are our enemies and the father it says in chapter one that that the father raised and exalted the son above these enemies and then in chapter two verse six we've been seated with jesus in the heavenlies and so by the time we come to chapter six and these are our enemies these spiritual forces in the heavenly places paul wants us to conclude they're defeated foes The resurrection power of God is at work in our lives, and so even these evil forces of chapter 6 and putting on the armor of God, which is synonymous, we're going to see down the road, with putting on the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 12, that this this is what we're doing is reminding ourselves of what's true in the gospel so that these spiritual enemies have no... Uh, way to persuade us or to woo us away from the gospel to lie to us and tell us that oh no you're going to out the grace of god you're not welcome in the family of god you've done it one too many times you're going to be kicked out of the family you're out that's what these spiritual forces this is what satan and his minions would love to teach you but the gospel says if you've believed upon jesus you've already been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son you're in And the Father's working on your behalf to keep you in. The reason you and I are Christians today is because the Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, are preserving and keeping us in the Gospel. That's why. It's because of Jesus. His person and work. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. Back in chapter 1, he says these spiritual powers are not simply inferior to Jesus he placed them above verse 21 all rule and authority and power and dominion not only in this age but in the age to come but they are also subject to him verse 22 he put all things under his feet including those spiritual forces they're subject to him they can't do anything apart from his authority So any trials, any suffering that comes into our life is already passed through the hands of a good and loving Father and a good and loving Son who died for us in our place. A sovereign God and a Spirit who 
intercedes for us and uses these things and causes them to work together for good in our lives. And this is why Paul ends with, oh, by the way, not only did he put all things under his feet in verse 22, Christ has headship over everything, but it's for the benefit of the church as head over all things to the church. For the benefit of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. It is church power. It's for the benefit of the church. The, think about what, what Paul is saying here. He, he started in verse 11 and saying um, that the Father is working all things according to the purpose, um, according to the counsel or purpose of his will. And he's doing this, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. So at the end of this prayer, he's saying, oh, there's some things in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. You've been seated in the heavenlies, he's going to say in chapter 2. These spiritual enemies, these spiritual forces, rulers and authorities, they're in heaven, but they're subject to Jesus. The Father is at work making Jesus the center of the universe. But he adds something here in verse 22. Jesus is the king and the center of the universe and everything is subject to him, but it's for the benefit of the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. The universe, the cosmos is being bent in new directions for the good of the church, the body of Christ. It's incredible. All of creation is being conformed to the purposes that serve the glory of Christ's church. And the church is the means by which He's filling the universe with His glory. Us meeting here today in Benicia, California, are a part of the means that God is using to fill this universe with His glory. As we worship, as we give, as we serve, as we hear the word preached, as we sing, all of these are acts of worship as a gathered church that bring praise and honor to Jesus. And this is the means the Father is using. There's no other institution that has this promise or power that it will be salt and light in the world. He's going to repeat this in chapter 4, verse 10, when he says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things and then the next list is what he gave as gifts to the church apostles and prophets evangelists pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of a son of god this is the means the the ordinary everyday workings of the church in gathering together, loving one another as a priesthood of believers, growing in discipleship and being on mission is the means the Father is using to fill the world, the universe, with the glory of His Son. That is exciting to me. It means I don't have to write a book that's a bestseller. I don't have to come up with the best songs and write songs. I don't have to be a really good talker. We can just go about the ordinary work of the church and know that this is the plan and purpose of the Father to fill all things with the glory of His Son. He's going to accomplish it in every sphere. He's going to put the church on display. So, so think of it this way. We are exhibit A 
of what God the Father is doing to sum up all things in Jesus and put him on display as King of kings and Lord of lords. So when we ask, is there power that can save me from bondage to my anger, my pride, my depression? Is there power that can liberate me from the bondage to this sin or that sin? Is there power that can get me through the trial that I'm enduring now, the temptations that I, that I face regularly? When we're tempted to believe, am I just a pawn in this world of powerful forces? Will Satan devour me? Will I believe his lies and turn away from Jesus? The answer is found in the reality of what Paul is praying. The Father has set Jesus over all things by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. He's granted him to rule over all things for the sake of his people with omnipotent power. And that power is already at work in our lives, brothers and sisters. We have an indestructible, unshakable hope to which the Father has called us. We're going to be with Him forever in the family. We are the Father's glorious inheritance in Christ. And there's coming a day when the Son is going to present us to the Father and sing over us, Here am I and the children you've given me. And we already have this resurrection power at work in us and for us our purpose then is just simply to be exhibit a of this gospel message that we're the temple we're the place where god's glory dwells on earth where people come to the gathering they can meet god and hear the good news of the gospel may the lord use us to make disciples in benicia and the broader solano county and bay area and california May we just be about His work. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened to see what we already have. All of the resources are already ours, which should give us great hope, even as practical as when we walk out these doors and have to face the reality of our lives when we leave this place. Let me pray. Father, thank You for this time and this Word. What a wonderful prayer. What hope what encouragement. Paul, he just, he prayed exactly the right things that we need to hear. This was the most important message we could have heard today. That you are working on our behalf right now. That we are your inheritance and we have a hope to which you have called us to. That you've planned, that you've purposed in Jesus, and so we will never be disappointed. We will never be put to shame. We will never be cast out. Father, if there's those who don't know you, that haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, would they see who Jesus really is? That he is your son who is a savior and a substitute who died in their place for their sins so that they could be forgiven. That he is a master and a, a king who is the best kind. A, a kingdom that, that will never fail. A kingdom that will never end. A kingdom that is prosperous. May you show them the beauty and majesty and sufficiency of your son. Do a work in us even now as we turn to the table. May it be a remembrance of everything that we have in Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.